Old Testament lesson. It's working out of 1 Kings chapter 8. We are reading partway through chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, and then picking up again in verse 54 through 66. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And then moving down to verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments, as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. Because the bronze altar was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Labo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness 
that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. And as we gather before you this morning, we do ascend into your heavenly house in and through Jesus Christ as we are united to him by your spirit. And so we come to the house of the living God and we come to hear your word. And so from your house, send forth your light and your truth according to your promise and lead us in all truth and righteousness. We ask that you speak, God, for your servants are here listening. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Through the first seven chapters of Kings, we've encountered the complicated and divided character of King Solomon. He was the wisest, he was the wealthiest, and he was the most successful of all of Israel's ancient kings. We noted, though, that despite all of his massive success and the blessings that did attend his reign, that he is a quite complicated character. He's characterized by virtues, and he's also characterized by vices. And that the virtues were not simply there early on and the vices there later on, but rather the virtues and vices were intermixed and that the vices took hold in Solomon's life and leads to a tragic compromise that we'll look at next week in chapter 11. But this week we see Solomon's virtue. We see his commitment to building the temple of God. Now last week we already noticed though that there was also vice, there was compromise in this construction project because Solomon devoted double the amount of time to building his own house. And so his motivations and his priorities are in question here in the scriptures. That Solomon dedicated more time to building his palace and the palace for his Egyptian bride. And that compromised and also slowed down the building of the house of God. But nonetheless, he also built this house. And to appreciate everything that's going on in the complications of Solomon's character... We have to resist the temptation to whitewash the story, making Solomon something that he was not, that we don't need to make him more virtuous than what he was. But we also have to resist the temptation to dismiss Solomon, just as someone that we don't have to listen to or to consider, condemning him as a failure. Rather, what God invites us into is that we listen to both Solomon's vices and to his virtues that we reflect on ourselves, that we consider his fidelity and we also consider his failures. And in all of that consideration, as we look at Solomon's life, the rise and fall of his kingdom, we learn there about God, we learn about his works, and we also learn about our own hearts because we find ourselves not far from being like Solomon. This week we see Solomon's great prayer of dedication. It's a lengthy one. And I didn't expose you to all of it. We skipped the center section, and we'll discuss that center section, though, as it is very relevant to what we're doing. But it was the feast that was celebrated. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And then at the end of that celebration, the temple is consecrated. And it's there at that grand opening of the temple that we find ourselves in 1 Kings 8. And it's all significant because the temple was a very particular place. It wasn't just a convenient place where Israel was to gather to go to church. 
We have to step back into the Old Testament and to a time of God's redemptive plan that's slightly different than today. It was the time of shadows where things were being foreshadowed. And the temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. And it was through the temple that God mediated his relationship with human beings, particularly his covenant people, Israel. And so it was through the temple that prayers were offered to God. It was through the temple sacrifices that forgiveness was extended. And yet Solomon recognizes the complication of all of this. If you follow in verse 27, he asked God the question in prayer, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so he recognizes that God dwells in the heavens. And whenever we try to place God, we can't make an object of him. But yet the temple is extremely important. It was this house in which God had placed his name. And it was this intersection point between heaven and earth. And of course, what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this shadow. That God gives us all of this elaborate system of the temple, of the intersection of heaven and earth, because Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, he referenced himself, because this physical temple of the Old Testament was the forerunner. It was the shadow of the full promise of God dwelling with us. And so it is in light of that that we can read this elaborate prayer, this elaborate long prayer about the temple. And we can look at that elaborate prayer through the lens of Jesus and we learn a great deal about what it's all pointing to. And we also learn a great deal about God's works and his ways with us. Without being able to make this neat and tidy, I'm breaking with Presbyterian convention once again. And we'll look at five ways of God's works and his ways with us. We'll consider God's reliability that we see here in the story and God's attentiveness to us, his people, his graciousness, his blessing, and also what God's great goal is when we gather before him. And so let's look at each briefly this morning. First, we see God's reliability. One of the great things that we've noticed about Solomon is that there was an acute, very sharp theological knowledge that he did possess, that in all of his wisdom, he understood God's revelation to human beings, and that God had revealed himself in the context of covenant, in which God had sworn himself to Israel, and made Israel his people, and he made promises to them. Those promises began with Abraham. They were then expanded under Moses. They were then expanded further under David, all telling one story of God's great plan to bless all the ends of the earth. And Solomon, when he arrives at the end of his prayer, he turns and blesses the people. And in verse 56, note what he says. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And friends, Solomon is recognizing something that in that moment of history, something had been fulfilled, at least partially. That the promises of God to Abraham and to Moses and to David, that these things were being realized on that day. And friends, this is what we learn 
that God is the one who keeps every word of his good promise. But please note something about the situation, because it wasn't just a promise that was made the day before. It wasn't a promise even that was made the week before or the year before. It was the promise, he says, that was made to Moses hundreds of years before. And so from generation to generation, there had not been fulfillment. There had just been promise. And yet God, over those generations, brings it to fulfillment. And we learn something critical about God, that he is reliable and he is trustworthy and he keeps every word of his promise. But his time schedule and his timetable doesn't work according to our own measures and standards and values. Yeah, Solomon got to see it. But one of the main crises that the people of God, you and I, face is that so often we call on God and promises and then we experience the disappointment. That we bounce back and forth from crisis to crisis in life and we bounce back and forth from unanswered prayer to unanswered prayer and we're left confused and scratching our heads. And some people think this is a reason to then deconstruct and tear apart their faith. But it certainly is not a new question. It's not a new issue. But it takes us to the heart of what a living faith is. It's to believe that God's word is good and God's word is true. That God fulfills every one of his promises. Why? Because he's sworn by his own life to do so. If you remember where this begins in Abraham, God makes the promise to Abraham that he would bless him, that his descendants would multiply. Abraham had no child, had no hope of a child. And then he has a very fitful dream. And Abraham there in the dream sees pieces of an animal slaughtered and sacrificed. And it is in the dream then that Abraham knows what is being expected of him, that he was being asked to swear a covenant with God. And the way it worked in the ancient Near East was when you swore a covenant, you would dismember an animal and then you would pass through those pieces, walking between the parts of the animal, and you would swear your faithfulness to the one who was greater than you. Abraham, understandably, was terrified. But that's not what happened. It wasn't Abraham who passed through the slaughtered animal. It was God. God passes through the pieces of the slaughtered animal. And what is happening is that God is swearing on his own life that he will make good on what he has promised. That he will fulfill every word of it. Friends, God has given us the greater confirmation in Jesus. Of Jesus coming and dying for us, taking away sins, of Jesus rising from the dead, that all of God's goodwill is ours. And yes, we still live in that mystery of trusting God to fulfill things and then not always seeing the final fulfillment of it. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things. Sometimes we have the wrong timeline in mind. But that the great task of God's people is to know that God fulfills every word of his good promise. And this is what we see here in 1 Kings 8. Over generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, God making good on what he said he would do. Second, we also learn about God's attentiveness. If you're to follow in verses 27 through 30, as Solomon really enters into the heart of his prayer, he acknowledges 
that there is complication in how we place God and where he dwells, but he recognizes that the temple is where God has placed his name. And then he begins to ask God that he would day and night, that his eyes would be turned towards this temple and that his ears would be open to the prayers of his people offered even towards the temple. This is the prayer. He's asking for God to hear the prayers the calls of his people, that he not be distant and far from him. And this is what's so remarkable, that in all the Bible's language of the transcendence and the greatness of God, of all the awe and the majesty that belongs to him, that your God is not indifferent to you, though, that he's not far away, that he's not removed, that he's not a stoic sitting in the sky who doesn't care for you, but rather that with his eyes and with his ears, he attends to you. This was Solomon's prayer. And of course, with the sign of the temple being fulfilled in Jesus, this is why Christians insist on praying in the name of Jesus. He is the true and living temple, and it's in and through Jesus that we approach the Father, and we make our request to him, and he attends to us, giving us wise and good answers according to his own counsel and his own timing. But what we're promised here is that it is God who attends to you. And hear the intimacy and hear the personalness of that promise, that God's eyes are toward you, that God's ears are open to your prayers as you come to him through his son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you pray like that? Do you approach God with that confidence and that boldness as Hebrews 4 instructs us to do? Do we trust that God actually attends to us in this intimate way? Third, we also witness God's graciousness. And this is really the predominant theme of the chapter, and we could go on for weeks. Because in the central heart of Solomon's prayer, there are seven different circumstances that are mentioned. And almost all of them involve the failures of Israel that God was called on to hear the prayers of Israel as they came up short of what they were to offer to God. And Solomon says, but hear them when they turn and they look to you. And we find here the marvelous story of God's grace that goes over against and beyond us in all of our sinful limitations and brokenness. In verses 31 and 32, Solomon mentions legal cases in which it was impossible to determine who was innocent and who was guilty. And he says, God, hear us as we face all of our human weakness there. In verses 33 and 34, he mentions that Israel being defeated after they have turned away from God. In verses 35 through 40, he mentions Israel's experience of drought and famine and plague and siege because of their hard-heartedness. In verse 41, he describes a situation in which a foreigner comes to the temple and he says, God, so that everyone will know that you are the true God, hear his prayer that he offers at the temple. In verse 44, he mentions Israel going out to battle to hear the prayers for the people. And then climatically, in verse 46, he opens a long section of prayer in which he prays for God to hear the prayers of confession of Israel when they have grown so hard-hearted that they've been removed from the land. And the dominant theme of this section is that Solomon holds out hope 
that the grace of God will have the last word. And friends, that's the message for you today. That the grace of God and God attending to his people through his temple, that the grace of God has the last word because that temple is Jesus Christ and he offers himself for your sins and your failures. And it's not an offering which is just comes with certain limitations. It doesn't come negotiated. It doesn't come if you're good enough, then you'll get this. No, it comes in radical grace. It comes directly from God as a unilateral gift that Jesus offers himself for your sins. And he cancels them out. And as we look to him, as we believe on him, as we trust him, that we find that this God is gracious with us, that he forgives all of our sin and our shortcomings, our unfaithfulness, all the ways that we fall short. You see, because we all know that it's very possible, in fact, regular for us to trespass the boundaries of God's law. We go beyond the goodness of his command and we go off into the far country and we go after what we want and what we desire. But here's the truth of it, that we can trespass the boundaries of God's law, but we can never trespass the boundaries of his mercy because that mercy goes out into that far country and it brings us back and it rescues us and it forgives us and it calls us son, it calls us daughter, it calls God's house our home. This is God's graciousness. This is what Solomon prayed for because this was the God he was approaching. And this is the God that we find this story, despite all of Israel's failures, that the story then continues and is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is God's gracious way. Fourth, we also learn about God's blessing. If you look in verses 59 and 60, Solomon says, let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. It's critical to recognize why he asked for God to remember these things, to attend to their daily needs. It wasn't so Israel could just be great. It wasn't so Israel could be self-satisfied and complacent. It wasn't so that they could sink into sloth and self-enjoyment and delude themselves with pleasures. No, it was a prayer for God to attend to Israel to bless them. That they would stand out among the nations, that all the nations would know that their God was the true and the living God. And this is what we learn about God's blessing is that God's blessing falls upon his people for one distinct purpose. That he blesses us that the nations and the families of the earth may be blessed. And this was the ancient promise all the way back to Abraham. That Abraham, I'm blessing you. I'm blessing the generations after you. That all the ends of the earth may be blessed through you. And this is why our Lord Jesus sends us out in great commission. To be blessing to the nations. And this is why when God blesses us, he doesn't bless us just for our self-enjoyment, for our self-pleasure. No, he blesses us that we be blessing to the world around us, to the world in all of its pain and all of its sorrow and all of its griefs where it doesn't even recognize them and know them. A world confused right and left and up and down, 
But yet God blesses us that we be blessing to that world, to that broken place. And so our task is to translate the blessing of God into blessing for others, giving ourselves sacrificially to serve them. It's what we see here in the temple, and it's ours through Jesus. Finally, we also see the great goal of God in the temple. There's an elaborate liturgical plan at work in the temple. And if you ever think our liturgy here at Christ Church is complicated, you have no idea. It's simple and it's clean and it's neat. It involves you getting up and down a couple of times, I know. But the temple liturgies were rather complex, but there's also a simplicity to them. You see down in verses 62 through the end of the chapter, the mention of some of the sacrifices that are happening. And this material can be deeply confusing, but what you must remember is as plainly laid out in Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 10 of what is happening in the, in the temple as the offerings are made to God. And there's essentially three movements that I'll summarize for you. The idea is that the temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. But what was happening as the worshiper came to this place is that they were rising, ascending to the house of God. And so they would bring a blameless, a spotless sacrifice. The worshiper would place their hands upon the head of that sacrifice, identifying that this was their living substitute, the one who would stand in for them. That animal was then sacrificed. Blood was shed because there was the need for atonement. Friends, obviously we have a perfect and final sacrifice in Jesus. And blood has to be shed for us to be united with God. Our sins must be forgiven. They can't just disappear. They are real personal transgressions against God's law in which we flouted his wisdom and gone our own way. But God offers the way back and it is through sacrifice. This is the first part of the temple liturgy. That animal was then put upon an altar. They had so many that they couldn't even fit them on the altar that day. And it's consumed by fire. This is the burnt offering. And many people ask, well, what exactly was happening? Why were they burning it up? And the idea present in the burnt offering is that the living substitute that had been placed on the altar for the sinful worshiper was then being consumed, that it stands in our place and then the smoke from that offering is arising to the heavenly places where God is truly enthroned. And so it is our ascent to the house of God through the smoke there. And then there's this final idea of after the burnt offering, the remainder was set apart for a sacred meal, fellowship in God's presence. And the people of God enjoyed intimacy with him. That with your family and your clan and your kin, you gathered together and you shared. And you feasted in God's presence, fellowshipping with him, enjoying God's hospitality. And friends, this is the goal. This is God's great goal for you, is to walk with him, to commune with him, to know him. That yes, he wants to bring you through the sacrifice. But he wants you to know more than the sacrifice. He wants you to offer yourself to rise to his house and to know what it is to commune with him, to walk with him, to know him, the true and the living God. This is what the temple liturgy was designed to communicate. 
And it's what we have in Jesus Christ who welcomes us into the heavenly places. And that in and through him, our prayers are brought to God the Father. And we commune with him, the living and the true God. We ascend to the house of God by God's spirit, no longer through bloody sacrifice. Friends, this is God's great goal for you, for me, for us as we gather on Sundays. is to fellowship with him to know him. That's what he has made us for. And so, yes, through this temple and through all that it signifies and through all that redemptive history, we learn about the living and the true God who has revealed himself progressively through time and then finally spoken this final word in Jesus. It's in the temple that we learn about the reliability of God It is there that we learn about the graciousness of God. It's there that we learn about God's attentiveness, that he is really invested and interested in you. And it's there that we learn about God's blessing, his great goal for you, to have fellowship with him in his presence. And so let's give thanks for that this morning. As we consider these cultic liturgies of long ago that feel far and distant, We ask that in all of this, that we see your gracious hand and how it's all finally fulfilled and revealed to us in Jesus. And so as we come today to ascend to your heavenly mount, your house in the heavens, hear us as we come in and through Jesus and remind us once again of your attentiveness, of your reliability, your trustworthiness, your forgiveness and grace. And may we share that intimate communion with you. And from there, may we be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. Teach us what it is to be a blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.